Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. Well, we're two games away from deciding who makes it to Super Bowl 51. We'll break down all those storylines and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 51 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do happen to miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 48 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode on iTunes or on my website at londonbridge.com on your Friday nights. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can always call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you might just be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. In sports, locker rooms are usually viewed as a sacred ground where only players and coaches are allowed to hear what goes on within those hollowed walls. That holy ground only increases when the magnitude of the games do as well. But one player from the Pittsburgh Steelers seemed to forget that unwritten rule over this past weekend. It's time for the number one parody news anchor segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. Locker rooms are often viewed as a sacred ground. So much so that when a coach is addressing a team, those moments are comparable to Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Nobody ever goes in. Nobody ever comes out. Nobody ever goes in. Nobody ever comes out. Players are expected to focus their full attention on their coach or a player who might decide to speak as well. But the world as we know it is changing. In a world of social media, things that were once kept secret are now shared to the internet world. 
Some players seek more recognition and approval from their fans and followers than they do their actual family and friends. 1,000 retweets now holds more weight than one pat on the back. Coaches and players now have to be more careful than ever of an unsolicited photo or a Snapchat video that will force them to apologize for something they thought was said behind closed doors. This past Sunday night, Pittsburgh Steelers head coach Mike Tomlin was under that impression that his post-game speech after his team beat the Kansas City Chiefs was also done behind closed doors. Little did he know, his star-wide receiver was in the middle of recording a Facebook Live video of the fiery comments, which were as follows. When you get to this point in the journey, not a lot needs to be said. Let's say very little moving forward. Let's start our preparations. Respected those ass a day and a half. They played yesterday. Our game got moved to tonight. We gonna touch down at four o'clock in the morning. So be it. We'll be ready for that. But you ain't gonna tell them we coming. Because some of us might not like the damn whoop kicking and the chest pounding. Keep a low profile. Let's get ready to ball up with this again here in a few days, and be right back at it. Hey man, this is our story, this ain't nobody else's story. Another player then followed saying, Be cool on social media, man. This is about us, nobody else, man. End quote. Ben Roethlisberger then appears to address the team, saying that they're going into a lion's den. It ain't going to be fun. Keep your mouth shut. Let's play Steelers football. But to Antonio Brown, those comments went on deaf ears. He was more concerned with his video views than he was on the views of his team or of the league that pays and also finds him, which says to stay off social media until after the post-game press conferences have ended. But hey, when you've got countless endorsements and are a Dancing with the Stars star, you've got to give the people what they want. In Tomlin's press conference on Tuesday, he apologized for his language, then ripped his star-wide receiver like a father would a son when he wasn't mad, but just disappointed, saying it was foolish of him to do that. It was selfish of him to do that. It was inconsiderate for him to do that. Brown later apologized on social media through a screenshot that he took of his notes app, saying his emotions and genuine excitement got the best of him. No mention if that excitement was from winning the game or from getting close to a million views on the Facebook Live video. But if the Steelers are worried about the New England Patriots using Tomlin's comments as fuel to the fire for the AFC Championship game on Sunday, no worries. Patriots head coach Bill Belichick has already said that he's not on Snapface and not worried about what they put on Instachat. I'm John Lund for Sports News, read like real news. Let's take a quick break to continue paying off those holiday credit card bills. 
When we come back, we'll meet the star field goal kicker for the Pittsburgh Steelers, who still probably couldn't get a drink from the bar from being unrecognizable after the game, and we'll get into our discussion with this week's guest. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. When a field goal kicker is the main story of a winning team, it's usually because of a game-winning kick that won the game and not from scoring all of the team's points. All this coming from someone who was pulled off the street just two years ago. Here's this week's edition of... Wait, who? Kickers. They ain't get no respect. And while I ain't a very good Rodney Dangerfield, the sentiment still remains true. There's nothing better for a kicker than to kick a game-winning field goal, and nothing worse than to miss one. Expectations are always high. Just do your job, regardless of the magnitude of the kick. Such were the expectations of the Pittsburgh Steelers during their divisional playoff game against the Kansas City Chiefs. They sent out their field goal kicker six times and expected him to make each one. He did. The man with the golden foot you ask? Chris Boswell. Wait. Who? Chris Boswell was a three-year starter for the prestigious Rice University. However, he continues to live in Rice lore, as his 358 career points is second on the all-time Rice scoring list. Boswell was signed by the Houston Texans as an undrafted free agent in 2014, solely as a kicker to compete with Randy Bullock. He couldn't, and was cut, then resigned with the practice squad. In 2015, Boswell was signed and waived twice by the New York Giants and failed to make the 53-man roster. However, Chris would find some luck when he was signed as a free agent in 2015 by the Pittsburgh Steelers, who were down to their fourth kicker of the season. That same season, Boswell kicked four field goals in an 18-16 win over the Bengals in the AFC wildcard game, including the 35-yard game-winning field goal with less than 20 seconds remaining. That was an NFL record for the most field goals by a rookie-slash-first-year player in a playoff game, and also tied for the most in Steelers' playoff history. The Steelers would lose to the eventual Super Bowl champion Denver Broncos the next week, but his seven total field goals in the postseason tied a franchise record. Boswell had a fine 2016 season as well, with a humorous anecdote. Bullock, the same kicker he couldn't beat out two years before, was signed as Boswell's emergency backup for a game in December. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world for kickers, man. In mid-December, Chris kicked six field goals against the Bengals, becoming the first kicker in NFL history to convert at least six field goals, and have five of them be at 40 yards or more. Then against the Chiefs, he did it again. He booted field goals of 22, 38, 36, 45 and two from 43 yards. His final one, a 43-yarder with 9.40 remaining in the game, ended up being the winning points in the 18-16 victory. 
teams were 0-245 all-time when their opponents scored two or more touchdowns than they did. Chris Boswell scoffs at your statistics. Boswell is now 14 for 14 in four postseason games and at 90% during his time in Pittsburgh. Who can become the fourth member of the Steelers' favorite American boy band, the Killer Bees? Chris Boswell, that's who. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text into the bridge at any time at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you might just be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text into The Bridge. This week, we want to know who will win Super Bowl 51 and why. But before Super Bowl 51, two games remain to decide who will travel up to Houston to win the coveted Lombardi Trophy. And this week's guest will help us try and figure out which teams that might be. We had the pleasure of chatting with Mike Tanier, who was an NFL national lead writer for Bleacher Report. And we'll talk about how he went from being a math teacher to a football writer and some of the things he does with that before diving into a recap of last weekend's divisional games. Then previewing the AFC and NFL championship games before ending things up with some MVP talk and Super Bowl discussion. You can find Mike on Twitter. He's a great and funny follow. He is at Mike Tanier. That's Mike Common Spelling. T-A-N-I-E-R. And I'll also attach a link to his writings from Bleacher Report in this week's show notes. So without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Mike Tanier. He is an NFL national lead writer at Bleacher Report and can help us talk a little bit about the NFL playoffs. Mike, thanks for joining the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Most exciting week of the year, the week leading up to the championship games. Uh, a close second is the two weeks of dragging around waiting for the Super Bowl. That's exactly right. So I wanted to talk to you for this week so we could be a little bit more excited than having to yeah. play that waiting game. I wanted to start off here and turn back the clocks a little bit to when you started doing this football thing as a full-time gig. How did you go from teaching math to becoming a football writer? Oh, my goodness. That's the most boring story in the world. I'll try to make it quick. Uh, I, got, I got an opportunity to, uh, to meet Aaron Schatz over at Football Outsiders. And by meet, it was e-meet. You know, we, we treated emails about statistics for a while. And, you know, I was a math teacher, so I knew some stats. So I knew a lot of football, lifelong Eagles fan. So I wrote a couple of things for him. Uh, this was a time when Aaron was really starting to take off. The books were starting to take off. Some of our, our, our gigs with then it was Fox, and then later it was ESPN took off. And one thing led to another. And uh, suddenly I was doing that full time, and I was, uh, you know, trying to proctor midterm exams and final exams and SATs while simultaneously writing articles for sports. So guess what? You can't really do that anymore. Made a go of it. Said goodbye to the classroom. Now here I am at Bleacher Report, and still with Football Outsiders, too, and I get a chance to do this full-time and just absolutely live the dream. So do we label you as a stats guy because of your mathematics background, or is that too nerdy of a thing to say? No, <laughs> uh, no, I'm proud of that. No, I'm not thought of that anymore. And in fact, when the stats get really technical and some of the modern stuff that comes out, I'm like, uh, 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 you got to go ask football outsiders. Uh, you might have to ask a pro football focus or something like that. But that's where I start. That's where the roots are. I love the analytics. 
nowadays, you know, I'm as likely to be doing that as be doing some humor article, doing some, you know, reporting, regular reporting, talking to the players and coaches and say what they think. A little bit of everything right now, but I'm a big fan of the idea that if you use stats and analytics right, it can really inform you about what's going on in the NFL. So are you hanging out near Philadelphia for the typical NFL season and have to deal with the ups and downs, not only as a fan, but from hanging around that city as the season goes on each year? Yes, as a matter of fact, sometimes it's hard to tell what a national story is and a real story is around here. Uh, you know, for a while, Wentz, the Wentz wagon certainly was the story here, and it was very easy to be able to go over there and, and, and get information about that. But yeah, we're, uh, you know, I'm kind of living the Eagles lifestyle here, and then when the Eagles are eliminated, I, I go up the turnpike and uh, live the Giants' lifestyle until they all jump on a boat or do something ridiculous, and then you do the, the whole national lifestyle. So, you know, that's the great thing about the East Coast, you know, embedded in Philadelphia, but you can get down to D.C., get down to Charlotte, get up as far as Foxborough and be able to, to, to get some coverage and, and kind of get a finger on the pulse of what those teams are doing as well. Right. You won't be too far away from one or two winners throughout the season, which we'll get into in a couple minutes. Now, the first introduction you give for yourself on Bleacher Report is that you tell Greg Schiano jokes for food. <laughs> Who has been the player that you've most enjoyed poking fun of for that said food? Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I keep trying to change that and update it and change it from Greg Schiano to somebody like Chip Kelly, and it never saves. So, you know, because now people are like, you're starving. Greg Schiano jokes, my God. What, you know, <laughs> it's like Richard Nixon jokes. Uh, you know what? By far, the greatest, the greatest uh, uh, sum total was Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow was the gift that keeps on giving. To this day, you know, he can play baseball and you can get jokes. I can throw a Tebow joke in the middle of something about Tom Brady and Ben Roethlisberger, and you still get a joke out of it. So, you know, not only was it, was it funny and it was weird, and it, at times actually genuinely inspiring as well, uh, but you, the traffic, man, the traffic, the clicks, <laughs> it didn't matter what you said about him. You, you made you, half the world love you and half the world hate you every time. Now, isn't it true I can make a Tim Tebow joke if I had a bag of pretzels next to me? Is there a way that we could do that? <laughs> the Tim Tebow pretzel. You don't remember the Tebow pretzel? I do. I need you to tell my listeners about the Tim Tebow pretzel. Uh, so one of the pretzel companies here in Philadelphia during that weird period where Tim Tebow and Chip Kelly were going to change the way we all think about uh, professional football, they came out with a Tebow pretzel. I don't even remember what it was shaped like. I guess it was kneeling in some way. Um, you know, I responded by taking out one of the local pretzels and, like, shaping it sort of as a man with two broken legs and made it the Sam Bradford pretzel. pretzel. That was my response to that. Uh, but, you know, that was Tebow mania. We will never see the likes of it again. And, you know, there's a way, almost to a degree, I, I miss it a little bit because now whether a quarterback's good or bad, we don't pretend they're good just because we believe in their religion or something. You're right. I was going to say, I hope that that comes back. <clears throat> Maybe not with pretzels, with Philly cheesesteaks, whatever you can get your hands on. I'm sure you can think of something. One of the things I guess you could say you're known for is the Monday Morning Digest, which happened to be released on Monday, that recap the weekend, tease what's coming next. What's the process? like for you putting that together how much you have to consume to get that going on Mondays? Oh well it's, it's very difficult particularly early in the season when the important story can come from anywhere so I, I put myself in a place where I have six or seven televisions going at once. I like to say that I'm in some hive mind or some studio but it's often a sports bar uh, where they, they will put me up in a place where I can see a bunch going on at once and I have to spend the one o'clock and part of the four o'clock triaging and figuring out what the big stories are going on and simultaneously making sure I actually know what happened in these games and then to talk about them. Then try to you know, ingest any other information I can get. You know, it, It's not like I can pick up the phone and get a coach on the line you know, 20 minutes after the game. I think Peter King can do that. I can't do that. Get the press conferences in. 
get the tweets and get any information I can in. Then from about uh, uh, six o'clock at night, so I'm not going to tell you what time at night. You know, way past the late game is over. Putting them together, putting them in slides. I don't call them slides. I think of them as pages because there's a couple hundred words of information and thoughts and jokes on each page. Get it all together. Feel proud of it. Send it to my editor. Wait a half hour and then discover all the things I did wrong. So that's that's the process. A lot of times, you, it's, if you see it at seven in the morning, it's six fifty-five in the morning. I was I was in there scrambling, getting something right that wasn't quite right. I can imagine. And you're at a bar and you can't even reap the spoils of what you should be doing <laughs> at said bar watching football. Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. So sober as the, as the archbishop in there all the time. The last thing you want to do is start falling asleep at 11 o'clock at night when the Seahawks and the, and the Cardinals are playing to a tie. Right. And, and you can't stay sharp to, to, like, to like tell the world in the morning how ridiculous it was to stay up for that game. So getting into these divisional games from the past weekend, and I guess we could start with America's team, America's favorite fan base, the Dallas Cowboys. And I actually (laughs) thought they played incredibly well for having two rookies at two of the most important positions on the field, but Aaron Rodgers had other ideas. Is there anything you can take from that game that Dallas could have done differently to change the outcome? Uh, Substituted properly. Uh, certainly, that kid Bryce Butler going in and out of the huddle, even though that was a little ticky tack, it was not a good substitution. That erased a big play. There were a couple of early drives where they were caught with 12 men on the field or had to call timeouts and things like that. Very little minor football detail for the coaches to get the guys on and off the field. It could have given them a, it would have been 21 to 3, you know, because they would have gotten some more points on the board. Let's put it that way. Other than that, you're exactly right. This is a team with two rookies. A lot of youngsters up and down the talent base. On the offensive line, we think of that offensive line as a veteran offensive line. I think the oldest guy is 26. You know, so, so they're all young dudes. They drafted amazing players who were like 20, 21 when they drafted them. So a lot of young dudes in there played very hard, came into a buzzsaw, particularly at the end when, when it was like invincibility mode for Rodgers. And, and the Cowboys can go into the offseason knowing that they can get better very easily, which is you know the next best thing, I suppose, to actually being able to move on. That was going to be my follow-up because we know Dallas fans are always excited about the Cowboys every year, and this season was no different, but that cockiness was able to come back this year as well based on the 13-3 and record, the first-round bye, the two rookies. This was going to be the year, but they ended up falling short, and now we go back to next year will be the year. But overall, is this something that you have to view as a successful season for Dallas? I think absolutely. I, I think you're coming off 4-12. and 12. Not only are you coming off 4-12, and 12, but you're coming off the how do you solve the Tony Romo long-term problem. You know, even with him, with him getting hurt and saying, well, he still plays the high level, he's healthy, his cap hit was getting more and more untenable. They say not only do we go 13-3, and three, but we solve that entire problem. That's no longer an issue in any way. Yeah, if we cut him tomorrow, we just take the cap hit like we're in purgatory for one year, and our quarterback is playing for cheap. He's a fourth-round pick on a rookie contract, so we don't have to worry about that. So, so all those things are, are a big positive for that team. And, you know, once the dust settles and the craziness and people are yelling, why didn't they do a free kick before halftime or whatever, that gets done. They can look around and say, you know, we're probably a pass rusher. We're an edge rusher away from being in the Super Bowl. We're a maybe get JPP. I've heard that scumbag. Like, go after <laughs> JPP. Put him out there. Or, like, go after a first-round pick because you don't want to screw your cap up. Put him on the line there and get out there, and you're going to be a very, very tough team for the next two, three, four years. 
Do you have any early inclination on what the hell is going to happen with this Tony Romo saga? Is he going to stay around as a backup? Are they going to get rid of him? Do you have any feel on what might happen next year when it comes to Tony Romo? I think it's going to carry on through the offseason for a while. I initially thought the most logical thing to do was to keep him for a year as a backup and then release him. And it's kind of like cat purgatory. You get this super overpriced veteran backup insurance policy, but then you don't have the the Derek Carr situation the Raiders have. Like, oh, no, Dak's hurt. What do you do? Ah, guess what, we, guess what we're paying like $86 million for. We got this guy in there. Then I watched Twitter during that game when Dak threw like two incomplete passes. And every nitwit, and including some of my colleagues and some of my brother colleagues, says, this might be Romo's time. We need to talk about Romo. We need to talk about Romo. Now, I know what you're saying. That's Twitter, and Twitter's full of people who don't have any skin in the game, et cetera, et cetera. We know Jerry Jones. We know the way he thinks. He is swayed by the multitudes. He wanted Johnny Manziel and his son had to rip the card out of his hands. That starts to play in his mind. That kind of thing can start to play in the local media's mind, which means it can play into the minds of some of the guys in the locker room. You can't have that because you're one step away from taking Dak, putting him on the bench or something stupid, creating doubt, and suddenly you've got an RG3 situation on your hands. So you don't want that kind of thing to happen. I think if they go to the marketplace and try to deal him, they're going to hear a lot of mid-round pick, late-round pick. They might want to take it. Because first of all, Romo's going to have to agree to any of those things he's done. He's not going to Cleveland. Tony Romo will not go to Cleveland because they said so. He'll go to the broadcast booth. So it's got to be a situation he likes. And the Cowboys might want to say, the goal here is to do what's best for everybody and maybe cut our losses a little bit. Staying in the NFC, the Falcons pretty much rolled over Seattle. 16-point win, scoring 36 points. Never really looked like they were in trouble in that game. And I know Earl Thomas was out. I know they have some injuries. But at least on the defensive end, that Legion of Boom that was so frightening only a couple years ago is, is almost a shell of itself. And I know you've touched on that a little bit with some articles about Richard Sherman and some of the things about their defense. Looking big picture, how much trouble might Seattle be in just to get back to where we expect them to be? You know, Mike Freeman wrote an article today at Bleacher Report, and he talked to some execs. So, like, the, the Legion's over. You know, it's done. That era is kind of passed. You know, you said, well, they had some injuries. They had an injury, really. Earl Thomas was the injury, and then they lost uh, the other kid, uh, Sheet, I think his name is, during the game. And, yeah, that's an all-pro player. That's a, that's a borderline Hall of Fame player in, uh, in, in Thomas. But it's still the one injury, and look at what happens. Look at how consistently some of the, the better offenses uh, in the NFL, we're able to move the ball against them this year. So uh, you, you have that. Like you said, I think if you look at the locker room, I was kind of getting on Richard Sherman and some of the nonsense he, he did this year. Uh, uh, Bennett went after somebody, Michael Bennett, excuse me, went after a reporter after the game. These guys have been smelling themselves a little bit, and it's time to reel it back in. They're still acting like they're the champions and defending champions, and how dare you question us, and we don't need to hear that. They need a little bit of that humility back, that business-like approach back as well. But most importantly, they got to refresh players in the defense, and that's going to be hard for the Seattle Seahawks to do because your offensive line is a shamble. They're going to have to invest draft picks again on the offensive line. They're going to have to invest free agent money if they have it to spend. They're going to have to try and keep that defense together based on mid-round picks and developing guys. They did it in the past. They've got to show they can do that again in the, in the future. Because the Patriots and Texans game warranted almost no excitement, I will warrant (laughs) my question to you in just one sentence. Should New England be worried about its play from that game, even though they still cover the 16 and a half? One of the things that the Patriots do very well is they, they use their margin of error. It seems like they schedule their bad game 
for when there's a really bad opponent. Right. Like, oh yeah, we can, yeah, we can get uh, get your interceptions in now, Tom Brady, because Ross Wilder will give them right back or whatever. Um, there, of all the teams in the NFL over the last 15 years, <clears throat> to get one of those bad games and come back afterwards and be like, boy, this was just what we needed because maybe we were getting a little big for our riches, getting sloppy, weren't executing. Oh, now Belichick is screaming at us and Brady is screaming at us and Brady's screaming at himself and everything, and they're going to be back on track. You know, I, I think the Steelers, there's a path to victory for the Steelers because they're a very good team, but I don't think you're going to see that same Patriots team go out there that you saw, particularly that second quarter when they were just making mistakes left and right and just giving the, giving the, the Texans a, a chance on life that they didn't really deserve. Getting into the Chiefs and Steelers game, I mean, congratulations to Kansas City for becoming the first team in, I think, 245-some-odd tries to score two more touchdowns than an opponent and still lose. Very impressive on their part. Should we be a little impressed, maybe, with Pittsburgh's defense and only allowing 18 points, or is this another example of disappointment in the Chiefs and Andy Reid for suffering yet another heartbreaking playoff loss? A little bit of both. I mean, you, you can see the limits of the offense of the Chiefs. And we try to say, well, you know, Tyreek Hill, he's unstoppable. Tyreek Hill is a rookie, kind of a slot guy, kind of a reverse guy and everything. He's very dangerous, but, you know, you can neutralize that when you don't have to worry about much else. And you have to worry about Kelsey. And then you look at the rest of the receiving core, and Macklin's a pretty good ball player. There's nothing else there. And the backs are good and all. They have to manufacture everything. Steelers come out there with a good game plan. Catch Alex Smith trying to throw deep a lot. Alex Smith is not going to consistently throw deep on you and win the ball game. I think if you go back and look at that game, the Steelers outplayed them up and down the field. They just couldn't put it in the end zone. They were making mistakes in the red zone. Yeah, there were some sloppy plays. There were some weird play calls where I think Todd Haley got into one of those weird zones he gets into where he abandons what works for some reason. And uh, overall, the Chiefs were only in that game because of some of the Steelers' sloppy play. I think if you played that over again and gave everybody another chance, you'd have a very convincing Steelers win, and you wouldn't be worried about the whole who scored a touchdown and who didn't thing. So you mean a holding call wasn't what made or broke that game? Well, it was a holding call because it was holding. Right. And I just saw, I just saw Brian Baldinger, you know, he's like, oh, you know, it's really a tough judgment call. It's not. That's an offensive lineman making excuses, ex-offensive lineman. It was holding. Uh, it was not anything but holding. It was flagrant. It was a left tackle against a star pass rusher in a visible spot where every referee could see them in a play where Alex Smith stood in the pocket for like seven seconds. Right. So it's like really obvious what's going on. That was holding, boys and girls. Get over it, Travis Kelsey. You didn't even have a good angle on the play. You're just blowing off steam. Everybody else did just like having a Twitter controversy about penalties. It was holding. That game was not really about the penalties in any way. Let's move on from that. Before we continue our discussion with Mike, let's take a quick break to continue paying off our holiday credit card bills. When we come back, we'll chat more about the playoffs and talk about this year's MVP and Super Bowl 51. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. We're back with Mike Tanier and... Can you just explain to me what Antonio Brown could have possibly been thinking to put up a Facebook live video and Mike Tomlin's trying to give his post-game speech? Listen, boys and girls, you know, kids of my children's generation know that you don't do a video of somebody else, particularly a boss or a teacher, and then post it without their permission, that you can get suspended from school for it, that it could be considered cyberbullying, or it could be considered the fact that Mike Tomlin is your boss. He's going to come after you with a can of whoop-ass nationally about it. I don't know what went through his head. I think some of these guys in the adrenaline is flowing after a game aren't necessarily making the best decisions. i tell you what will never happen again in the NFL. 
no player will ever do that again in the NFL. Stick with that Antonio Brown. After Mike Tomlin went so far as to say, you might wind up on another team next year to Antonio freaking Brown uh, uh, over that. So, So let that be a lesson to us all. The two coaches that are going to be playing in that game are ones that I don't want to cross like that. And getting into that (laughs) game in general, you wrote a great piece today on Bleacher Report called Brady versus Big Ben. Disappointing rivalry can get new life in the AFC title game. And I think you're right with that. This is really the biggest or at least the longest rivalry we have going now when it comes to quarterbacks at the top of their games with Super Bowl championships. Was there something that stuck out to you while researching that, taking a look at their nine previous games that really sticks out? They were mostly blowouts and mostly Patriots blowouts and not really exciting, compelling games. And honestly, they were often like some game in mid-November, October. I I was looking for like a a big December game, and I think there was one. That might have been when Brady was hurt. So, So it's almost never like this is it, this decides things. I mean, yeah, certainly like some playoff tiebreaker was affected several of the times. But that's unusual in these great players. And, you know, things you don't think of as rivalries, like if you go like Aaron Rodgers versus Drew Brees, and you go through their history, you're going to see some crazy epic shootouts. And, yeah, there was a time or two when they met in the playoffs and things like that. You see these really amazing things. And, and, and the one that looked like it was going to be good and might still be good is Cam Newton versus Russell Wilson. They've already had these wild games against each other. All they, they were more like defensive and scrambling type games. You never got that with these two. That's weird. Only the second time they're meeting in the playoffs at all, First time was when Roethlisberger was a rookie, so of course he got taken to the woodshed by Belichick. So, you know, I I think Brady's going to win in this one, but I would just like to see some kind of capstone for this because in a lot of ways, it's not just Brady and Peyton. It should be Brady, Peyton, and Big Ben. When you look at who was in the Super Bowl all those years, it was one of those three. Big Ben was always in there. He was always involved in some way at the end. He just never went head-to-head with the others as much. Uh, this is a chance to kind of rectify that and see what that would look like, uh, you know, one time before these guys get too old. We know what the main storylines for both teams are probably going to be and that the Patriots and Bill Belichick usually tries to shut down what works best for you. And I guess he might have to pick whether that's Le'Veon Bell or trying to shut down Antonio Brown, whereas the Patriots can have anyone step up for them in a particular game, whether it be one of their token white receivers, one of the three or four running backs that they seem to throw out there and find success with, or whether it's, it's Tom Brady throwing to everyone and just doing his thing. Is there something that's sticking out to you a little bit early here that might be that deciding factor for either team and maybe helping them at least have more of an advantage in that game? Well, I, I I was sharing with you, I was doing some study of how the Patriots defense does things. I was, Watching what they were doing against Demarius Thomas early in the year and Emmanuel Sanders, <laughs> you know, I think of Emmanuel Sanders is a little bit like Brown in his playing style. And, you know, they they were doing a thing where they were taking Eric Rowe and they were lining up on Demarius Thomas, like big on big. That was the lockdown. They, they got the kid Logan Ryan. They put him in the slot, and then they will have these like every time a little different kind of double coverage thing. Like you would say, okay, how do you stop Antonio Brown? Oh, Malcolm Butler and McCourty on top of him, and that's uh, as a deep safety. Like, they do do that sometimes. But then I would see, like, Ninkovich run underneath so that, like, uh, the, the quarterback could play deep and there was a guy buzzing underneath. And, and there was another time where, like, Chung, the, the, the safety, who's like a backup safety, was just, like, following him in bracket. And every time it was, like, kind of the same logic. There was, there, you know, Sanders, and I saw it with some other guys as well. This guy got this weird combo double coverage where he never knew it was coming from. Rowe was supposed to stop the big dude, and that would be like, you know, Eli Rogers or whoever they got over there. And they know that they, and they know they're going to get a pass rush. They know the linebackers can fly around. You're going to see that 
I think that that's going to be a, a good model to be able to limit Antonio Brown, at least from a big play standpoint. Once you start eliminating Antonio Brown, you have that question. Who are these other Steelers receivers? Martavius Bryant suspended. Wheaton's hurt. Uh, Sammy Coates was good early in the year, broke his hand. I think he's playing with a broken hand. He never catches the pass anymore. And if you neutralize that, neutralize the rest of the receiving core, you can find a way to contain the running game, especially when Tom Brady's out there working up a lead. So you like Tom Brady at home to go to uh, another <laughs> Super Bowl is what you're saying. Smoking hot cake, man. Really going <laughs> on the edge there. Tom Brady is good. Yeah, that's what that's why I that's why I'm a national lead writer, my friend. For edgy, edgy takes like that. That's what gets you the clicks, man. That's all you have to put down. Especially <laughs> the New England good, fans. Man, that's it. They'll eat that up. So the Falcons and Packers game, arguably the best offense in the NFL against arguably the best quarterback, one of the worst yep. running defenses in the league against a team that has a wide receiver at running back. Vegas yep. thinks this game is going to be a shootout, and based on yep. what we've seen from Aaron Rodgers the past, oh, eight games, and what Matt Ryan has been able to do in an MVP-like season, is that where you're leaning, that this might be this epic shootout that everyone is predicting it to be, or, or might it be one of those battle games where you just go in the complete opposite direction of what people think? I see no reason to think that, you know, because I see a banged-up secondary for the Packers. Uh, I see a, a young, extremely young, with some injuries, the pre-existing injuries, secondary for the Falcons. I see two great quarterbacks. I see you know, a deep receiving core for the, the Falcons, and I see if Jordy Nelson's back, that's a deep receiving core. Otherwise, there's a lot of weapons scattered around in the best quarterback in the world. Two very good offensive lines. There, there, there's nothing that doesn't say shoot at. This is going to be like some of those, like, what was it, Packers against uh, Kurt Warner uh, when he was with the Cardinals, and they had that great offense with Fitzgerald and Bolden. That kind of game, that's what I'm thinking. The danger of picking a game like that is that it, it, it can go either way. And if you say the final score is going to be 43-40, to 40, how do you actually say which team is going to come up on the, on the receiving end of that and is going to come up on the winning end? I found an interesting discussion before the playoffs started was what quarterback had the most to lose by losing? And what I mean by that question is we love to have these discussions with quarterbacks about where they stand in the upper echelon and if they're elite and how many championships they should win. And the list goes on and on about ranking quarterbacks and where they stand in the playoffs. Based on these four quarterbacks, now that it's been narrowed down, is there one that sticks out to you that if they were to come up short this weekend would kind of be under the microscope a little bit for having a major loss and having it go against them a little bit? Yeah, well, it's not Tom Brady. Yeah, it's not Ben Roethlisberger. <laughs> and, 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 you know, there, there are some yackers on midday who'll make something about Aaron Rodgers, but, like, only the, only the desperately unemployed listen to them. Uh, you know, so you, you're, you're left with Matt Ryan, and you think, well, what would the consequence really be? And, and a lot of us will, will file off, say, oh, he doesn't win the big game, you know, 0-2 in, in an NFC Championship game. When the rubber meets the road, that's his team. I guess the only concern will be he's probably going to lose his offensive coordinator. Kyle Shanahan will probably wind up being the 49ers head coach. So he will come in if he loses this game in a situation, changing coordinators. There will be a microscope. There will be expectations there. That said, his starting job is guaranteed you know, for the foreseeable future, and, and his leadership of that team is not questioned. The guy who would have been in would have been Alex Smith. But, of course, he's already under that microscope anyway. Right. Alex Smith comes in there year after year, and you look at him and say, this guy doesn't get past here, and you can see the throws he's not making. And when is the team going to decide that you know, good is not good enough, et cetera? <laughs> but the fact that he's not here now says, says all you need to say about how that, how that storyline unfolded. 
and we could have Matt Ryan leave this thing with the greatest participation trophies with the NFL MVP award, which is where I'll start wrapping this up. I know that discussion's a couple of weeks away, and we have to look back. It's hard to kind of focus in on the regular season when we have a couple of playoff games under our belt, and we've seen what some of these players do on the big stage. We know what Brady and Rodgers have done. We saw Matt Ryan have an incredible season, and we got two great rookies in Dallas who people also think are deserving of perhaps getting mentioned. Is there somebody that sticks out to you as this year's MVP? I was just lay it all out for you. Dak Prescott is the rookie of the year. Ezekiel is the offensive player of the year. Tom Brady is the best quarterback in the history of the NFL or one of the three or four best if you want to have that argument. From about 2011 on to now, Aaron Rodgers has been the best quarterback in the NFL. You go back to Brady's you know, honorary thing goes back to 2002 and 2007 and those Super Bowl seasons of 04, 05, et cetera. Rodgers is the best right now. The MVP of this season is Matt Ryan because that's a snapshot from September to December. It's a look at like what the accomplishments were, not necessarily the scouting ability. And there were those weeks when Rodgers, had his little mini slump, was having a hard time. Yeah, I know that there were receiver injuries. There were other things there where he wasn't that effective for a significant chunk of the season, whereas Matt Ryan for this entire season has been uh, has been uniformly excellent. So that's why Ryan is the MVP, and yet we can turn and we can look, look at Brady, we can look at Rodgers, everybody else and say they have their place in these conversations and they're things they can hang their hat on as well. Did we just potentially tease a 7 piece slideshow that you're going to release regarding everything that you just mentioned. I think you could fill a page for each one of those pretty significantly with stats. Well, you know what? During that two weeks before the Super Bowl, it's hard to fill a slideshow up with things. Uh, so no, 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 they don't let me pat it like that. Every one of my <laughs> slideshows, all killer, no filler. It's never anything like that. You may see a slide where I talk about these things, but a few weeks ago, I did break down Ryan versus Rogers. And, you know, I'm not going to get into a, into a knife fight with anybody about Ryan versus Rogers. I, I hold them both in high regard. If I needed a quarterback tomorrow, I would call Aaron Rodgers. That's not what the MVP award is. MVP award is over the last four months who has the most accomplishments to, to be successful for the team, et cetera, et cetera. And that winds up being Ryan. So you gave a slight tease to Super Bowl 51 in it being New England and Atlanta, which means I have to follow that up with who you got in Super Bowl 51. Who in their right minds when it's New England versus Atlanta is going to go against New England? Now, I'm not saying that like if I sit down and I do the breakdowns, because I've been looking at the, at the, at the a Patriots defense, you can see little places here and there. It's like, oh, some of these young guys you know, run around a little bit. And they, uh, whatever. Going in from this view out, the Patriots are going to win the Super Bowl because they're the Patriots, because they can do what you said before about 50 different things to beat you. And against a team that doesn't have that pedigree, it's, it's hard to, it's, unless you really do a deep dive into the numbers and into the film, it's hard, to, it's hard to look any other way. So what can we expect to see from you from the remainder of the week for some things you got working on in Bleacher Report and some things you might be helping break down to us on top of doing the show? Uh, well, I, I'm uh, working on the thing on the Patriots defense right now that will be going live sometime later in the week. And then I'm going to be doing a, a, a nice big digest uh, for the the, the uh, excuse me for the championship rounds, uh, a breakdown of everything I can possibly do that night after we find out who wins. Then here's the big thing: the next week I will be in Mobile for the Senior Bowl, so I will be down there and I'll be doing day by day updates of what's going on in the Senior Bowl, who looks good, what, which of these prospects are moving on, some sights and sounds. I get to talk to some scouts and GMs. I'm definitely going to do that. Not draft Twitter type stuff, folks. Not out there saying, "Oh, I got a hot take about this, hot take about this." Real t- talk with the prospects. 
real opportunities to look at these guys and say, yeah, this guy's pretty good. This guy's even better. And that's going to be all week next week for Mobile, Alabama. Should we expect you at Houston? I might need a man on the street for that week. <laughs> I, will, I will be in Houston. And uh, Houston is so spread out, I will definitely be a man on the street. I'll be the man in the Uber. I didn't know if, if Bleacher Report had pockets like that. That's good to hear that they're sending you down. <laughs> you got a couple busy weeks ahead of you, Mike. I am looking forward to every minute of it. I love being on the road. I love covering these games. And then I am looking forward to, uh, I think, two days after the Super Bowl when they let me shut down, and I'm going to be sitting and doing nothing but Netflix for about 48 straight hours. Well, I think all of America will be right with you, and we're still waiting to get that Monday after the Super Bowl, a national holiday, so we could all take it easy yes. after the day of events. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the show. It was a pleasure getting to hear some of your thoughts on the playoffs and clear some things up from us. And you did just as good with some of the jokes that I was hoping that you would provide as well. So I appreciate your time. <laughs> Hopefully down the road we can catch up again and, and see what else you're up to with Bleach Report. But keep doing your thing. Enjoy the next couple of weeks, and hopefully we can catch up soon. Always a pleasure. It was a great time to being on the show here. Take care and enjoy the games. Thank you, sir. Will do. You as well. We'll close out the show with America's fastest growing sports segment called Good Try, Good Effort. Here we'll briefly mention some of the instances from throughout the week when a team or player or coach meant well but didn't quite meet those expectations. First up, good try, good effort from the San Diego, I mean Los Angeles Chargers. Not only did Dean Spanos move the Chargers from San Diego to Los Angeles thinking that L.A. would welcome another football team with open arms, but the Chargers' PR department took quite a bit of a hit after unveiling its new logo on social media. The logo was an L with the bottom of it sort of resembling a lightning bolt and making up the cross of the A next to it. Basically, it was really just a knockoff of the Dodgers logo and even was done with the letters being in white over a dark blue background. Social media, of course, and even some teams did not take kindly to the logo and ripped and mocked the Chargers for it, which prompted them to say that it wasn't the final product. Don't worry, we're working on other things. Then prompted them to just kill the logo altogether, perhaps setting the record for having a logo for the shortest amount of time in sports history. Also, a good try and good effort to new Los Angeles Chargers head coach Anthony Lynn, who opened up his introductory press conference as the first coach for the newly named team like this. Good afternoon. Folks, I am pumped. I am so proud to be the head coach for the Sydney, uh, LA Chargers. Oops. Good try, good effort to Colts owner Jim Ursay, who approached John Gruden to be his next head coach, even though current head coach Chuck Pagano is still on his staff, and also approached former franchise quarterback and Super Bowl MVP Peyton Manning for a front office role. Shooters shoot, Jim. Shooters shoot. And lastly, good try, good effort once again to Antonio Brown for trying to gain social media followers instead of following orders. What the? Good job, good job, good 
That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can subscribe to The Bridge Sports Podcast on iTunes. Please leave a positive rating and review if you enjoy the show. And by doing so, you'll immediately be notified when new episodes of The Bridge are posted each week. You can also find the Bridge Sports Podcast on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you'd like to hear the live recording of the show, visit sportsradioamerica.com every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time or check them out on the TuneIn app. You can also visit londonbridge.com slash email to subscribe to the Bridge newsletter, which will provide weekly updates and behind-the-scenes information about the next show and who the featured guest might be. You can also find more ways to contact the show under the contact tab over on londonbridge.com. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll recap the AFC and NFC Championship games and preview Super Bowl 51. We'll chat about the Hall of Fame voting in Major League Baseball, dabble with some NBA, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.